We hope you enjoy this podcast from Light Church Edithburg. To find out more about us, visit lightchurch.co. It's so an honor for me to be here. Thank you for being my Edithburg family. Um, you are my only Edithburg family, right? And so, and I'm I'm really um, I'm really happy I'm really happy about that. Um, we will uh, I will honor your time tonight because I realize it's a work night. And if you're over the age of forty, we don't tend to do things outside after seven, right? Like it's like. <laughs> Like, like, that's what, I, I, once you turn 40, you give, like, I don't know if there's a movie theater in Edithburg, but the thing is, 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 is sometimes people go, sometimes people say, Shane, you want to go to a movie, you know? And I'm like, what time does it start? And they're like, 7.45. And I'm like, that means, am I like an animal or something? Like, I would never go to a movie at 7.45 because you just sort of, you sort of extrapolate that forward. And so um, tonight we'll be done by 8 o'clock. Um, and, um, and hopefully Jesus will get bigger. The cross will work better. The resurrection is central, and scriptures get bigger, um, not smaller. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend probably 15 minutes or so explaining to the best of my ability what happened. And then we're going to spend the rest of the time exploring what's happening in us right now because of what happened. So before we get to the scripture in Acts 8, we, I want to tell a story. This story will serve, it's a true story, it will serve as the primary image of what we're going to talk about tonight, okay? Um, I'm an American, and Americans love Australian culture. We love it. We're enamored by it. Uh, we can't get enough of it, primarily because of a guy named Crocodile Dundee, who was a fictional character that made it big. Um, the other thing is there's a, there's a steakhouse in America called Outback Steakhouse, right? And at Outback Steakhouse, what they did is they made millions of dollars simply naming their food after Australian towns. That's literally all they did. Now, Americans love Australian culture. I'll, I'll give you an example, okay? Americans have never heard of pavlova. We don't know what that is, all right? Do not know what pavlova is. I do because I've been living here 18 years. But Americans do not know what pavlova is. So if you move to America and open a pavlova shop, you're going to go broke, right? But if you simply call it the great Aussie pie, right, you'll make millions because Americans love Australian culture. So when American, when Americans come to Australia for the first time, they always want to see one thing. They want to see the outback, right? And I try to tell them, you don't want to see the outback. There's nothing there, right? Here's all you do. Fly to Mount Isa, drive five minutes out of town. That is the outback. 3,000 miles of that. That's what you have. But Americans, they love it because they think Crocodile D lives there. They, you know, the, the outback steakhouse. And so the thing that Americans can't get their head around is the size of your properties, we don't have anything like this, okay? Like Bill Gates just became the largest private landowner in America. Like he bought up a bunch of farmland and it was like a million acres or something. Australians hear that number and go, like what are you talking? My pastor is an old cattleman and he's 84 now, but his cattle property when he was a teenager was 70 miles long by 30 miles wide. Well, two... To, to an American, that is the state of Connecticut, okay? We don't have anything that big, right? And so, and so the, the American went out um, to see the outback, and he got enamored by these cattle properties and the sheer size of it. And he couldn't get his head around. He says to the, he says to the farmer, he says, how do you keep the cows from running away? <laughs> and the farmer said, what are you talking about? He said, well... You haven't fenced up your whole property. And the farmer said, you can't fence up a property this size. It's, it's too expensive. You need a congressional act to build your wall or something. You can't, you can't do that. And he says, right, so how do you keep the cows from running away if you can't fence up the whole thing? And he says, well, what you do is you have a surveyor come in and put strategic wells. 
down certain specific parts of your paddocks, and it creates consistent and predictable water sources. And he says once the cows know where the water sources are, they won't vary more than three kilometers or so from that water source. And he said if it gets dry, they're coming back to the water source. And the farmer said to the American, mate, mate, if you got the right wells, you don't need all those fences. Which leads me to Jesus. So Jesus comes on the scene in the most fence-based paradigm of ministry ever created. 613 rules. Who's in? Who's out? Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's clean? Who's unclean? Jesus changed the whole thing to two fence posts. Love God and treat others as you would want to be treated. Don't be people seeking to be right about singular verses. Be people who want to fulfill I know. <laughs> See ya, buddy. Okay. Be people who want to fulfill the whole lot by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. The, the number two question that I get asked in the COVID thing is, where's the church go from here? Surely after all of this, the church will not look the same as it does today. What are the moves the church needs to make? And this is one of them. And I'm going to spend the whole night talking about this because for you to be a part of where God is fixing to take the church and be happy about it. Now, you can always be a part and be disgruntled. But for you to be a part of where God's fixing to take the church and be happy about it, we have to move. We have to make this move. And that is we need to move from a fence-based way of thinking to a well-based way of thinking. We need to move from fence-based mentality to well-based mentality, which leads me to the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is about a group of people who were so profoundly connected by Jesus that they started applying the way he saw his world to their world. So Jesus saw the world as a well-based opportunity instead of a fence-based opportunity. And this group of people, here's the whole book of Acts in 15 seconds. Ready? Here it is. Whole book of Acts in 15 seconds. A group of people do amazing things, but because they do amazing things outside of the rules, they get persecuted for doing those amazing things. Then they overcome the persecution, and then they do more amazing things, and then they overcome that persecution, and then they do more amazing things, and then they get persecuted for doing the amazing things, and then they get persecuted for doing the amazing things, and then they do more amazing things, and then they get persecuted for doing those amazing things. And then their friend named Stephen gets killed. And once folks start getting murdered, it is time to take things seriously. And even the most ardent followers of Jesus, they're like, look, you killed our friend. We're going to take our show on the road till you chill out, right? And so they go to Samaria. By Acts chapter 8, they're supposed to be in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the other most parts of the earth. But by Acts chapter 8, they're still in Jerusalem until their friend gets killed. And then their friend gets killed and they end up in Samaria, namely a guy named Philip. And he starts doing amazing things. So amazing, in fact, that people started offering him money to do the same thing. And then this really weird story happens. It's weird because it's not connected to anything before it. And it's not connected to anything after it. It's just put in there by Luke. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, Luke would have obviously had lots of stories that he could have included. But he chose to include this story that's not connected to anything before or after. And I think it goes right to what we are going to talk about Tonight, this is Acts chapter 8. If you could bring that up, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go to the south, uh, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. 
And he rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated on his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Let's stop and let's think about this for a second. This story makes no sense. You have a foreigner eunuch who rode a horse for 3,853 kilometers. According to Google Maps from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia to Jerusalem is 3,853 kilometers. He rode a horse from Ethiopia to Jerusalem clutching the scroll of a prophet that he would have had no way of understanding what the guy was talking about. This makes no sense. Why would a guy ride a horse for 3,853 kilometers? To put a, an Australian understanding on that, that's right. Excuse me, that's riding a horse from Adelaide to Mount Isa, turning right and going to Townsville. That is a long way to ride a horse, clutching the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Why would he do that? And so it just gets weirder. Watch what happens. Next slide. And the Spirit said to Philip, we'll go over and join him on his chariot. So Philip ran to him and he heard him reading the, the prophet Isaiah. And he said, well, do you even understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him and now the passage of scripture he was reading was this. Next like a sheep he was led to slaughter, like a lamb before his shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom can I ask you, does the prophet talk about these things? Is it about himself? Or is it about somebody else? His understanding is so elemental, he's not even sure who this guy's talking about, but he knows he's interested. He's like, this guy's talking about a God that doesn't sit above his creation and judge it or banish it or criticize it, but rather engages the story, even if it means him suffering with creation, in order to make a better story. I'm interested in this. What's this guy talking about? Is he talking about himself or somebody else? I have so many questions about this. Ne next slide. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with that scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Keep going. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through as he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. What an odd story. This story is frankly bizarre. A foreigner Ethiopian eunuch rides a horse, 3,853 kilometers, clutching the scroll of a prophet he doesn't even understand what he's talking about, in Jerusalem. And in the middle of all this, Philip comes and goes from Samaria to Jerusalem, where there was danger to have an encounter with this guy. Now, I, if you're paying attention to this story, you should have questions, right? I have questions. Like, and there's nothing you could tie it to before nor after. This is just a story put in the middle. So I'm going to let you in on the questions I ask, and maybe you'll connect with them in a way. Like, ne next slide. Like, let's, is there too much information in this passage? Like, do we actually need to know he's a eunuch? Why six times does it say, oh, by the way, this guy's a eunuch? If we haven't mentioned it yet, this guy, he, hey, he's missing part of his anatomy. He's, he's, he's a eunuch. Oh, by the, by the way, if we haven't mentioned this, this guy's a eunuch, right? Like, do you, if you're the, why not the Ethiopian guy? Or why not, like, bury the Ethiopian? No. Eunuch. This guy's a eunuch. Six times it reminds us this guy is missing part of his anatomy. And do you really want that known about you, right? Like, I can picture the eunuch right now confronting Luke in heaven going, really? Really, bro? You putting that in the Bible? Seriously? 
You, you know Shane Willard can't just read over that. He's going to point that out to everybody. Everybody's going to know. Everybody, everybody in the world, people in Edithburg 2,000 years from now are going to know that I am missing part of my anatomy. This is horrible. Why do we need to know that? Two, why is he choosing to worship in Jerusalem? That's weird. Out of all the places he could have went to worship, why Jerusalem? Why that? And why is he clutching the scroll of the prophet Isaiah? That's even weirder. Why that? Out of all the scrolls available to him, why the scroll of the prophet Isaiah? And how does the good news apply to an Ethiopian who's missing his anatomy? What's going on there? Why is this so important? Uh, next slide. And, and is there any reason why I can't be baptized? So he asked Philip, can you think of a reason? I'd like to join your Jesus movement. Can you think of a reason I can't? Because the thing, I'm going to get to that in a second, because there was a reason why he couldn't. Because this thing, this passage is making us wrestle. And hopefully it's making me wrestle and it's making you wrestle because this is the move the church has to make. And if we don't make this move, we're at least 15 years behind. But I would make a case we're 2,000 years behind because I think Jesus was trying to move the whole world from fence-based thinking to well-based thinking. And the question we must wrestle with is, going forward, are we going to be a fence-based place or are we going to be a well-based place? Because here's the truth. When an Ethiopian eunuch says... Is there any reason I can't be baptized? The answer is, yeah. First, you're a foreigner. Second, you're a eunuch. And here's the problem. It's written in the Bible. Let me show it to you. This is Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, 2, and 3. This is what it says. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter into the assembly of the Lord. God doesn't accept eunuchs. It's in the Bible. So think about the groups of people that we think God doesn't accept. Eunuchs are in that group. We, there's a verse for this, okay? God does not accept eunuchs. Now, so when a foreigner eunuch says, can you think of any reason I can't join your movement? The, the answer is, uh, yeah, I can. There's a Bible verse that strictly forbids eunuchs. God does not accept eunuchs. And Philip has a choice. He can either be right about Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, or he could do something profound and fulfill Scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. And Jesus called his followers to not be obsessed about being right about singular verses, rather fulfill Scripture by treating others as you would want to be treated. Jesus exemplified that over and over and over again. Adulterers caught in the act of adultery... The scripture says stoner. He says, I'm not going to do that because I love people more than the rules. I love God. The, the God revealed in Christ loves people more than the rules. And so we're going to be people who fulfill scripture instead of be right about it. Moses gets on a roll too while he's at it. Watch what he says. He says, and no one born of a forbidden marriage or any of their descendants can enter in the assembly of the Lord, not even 10 generations from now. We've got a runner. In other words, I, I, I was born... I was born in 1976, and in 1976, I mean, I'm 45 years old, okay? I was born in 1976, and in my lifetime, I have heard a youth pastor use that passage to urge teenagers to avoid premarital sexuality. And the reason is, is he said, if you mess up and get them pregnant, your kid won't be welcome in heaven. Nor the grandkid, nor the grandkid, nor the grandkid, nor the grandkid, nor ten generations. Now, of course, those people then leave the church, and then the church people said, look, they rejected Jesus. No, they did not reject Jesus. They rejected the image of Jesus presented to them, and that image should be rejected. And Moses keeps going. Oh, and no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. 
So in the first three verses of Deuteronomy 23, there's more fences than Jesus' entire ministry combined. And actually, Jesus' presence himself confronts these things. If you check Jesus' genealogy, he's 128th Moabite. I think God accepts Moabites. And there were a few questions revolving around the circumstances around Jesus' birth, right? 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 And so in this passage, you've got no eunuchs, nobody born of a forbidden union, no Ammonites, no Moabites, foreigner eunuchs, no way. Which leads to this question, why the prophet Isaiah? Now, if you don't hear me say anything else the rest of your life, please hear me say this. If you want to ruin the Bible, like if your goal is to ruin the Bible, read it statically. Read it as if God wrote it or something, right? Like that's it. The Bible is not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God that leads to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. The risen Christ is the final word of God, right? So in Deuteronomy 23, you have a clear fence. No eunuchs allowed. No Moabites, Ammonites, nobody born of a forbidden marriage. No eunuchs allowed. But this eunuch is a foreigner eunuch, and he's clutching the scroll of Isaiah. Why? Here's a further revelation Isaiah has that God's nicer than people thought. This is Isaiah 56, which would have been on the same scroll that this guy was reading. Watch this. Next slide. Oh, that skipped one. Go back. Yep. Uh, yep. Let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say the Lord will exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I'll give a name within my temple and its walls, a memorial, and a name better than the sons and daughters. <laughs> what? Isaiah's like, ah, ah, God's nicer than you thought. It, it, I know the rule says no eunuchs and no foreigners, but if a foreigner eunuch wants in, God's not going to cast them aside. We got Ruth. You know, Ruth's this Moabite that wants to be a Jew. What do you do, you know? Isaiah's like, God is nicer than you think. Oh, watch, he keeps going. He, gets, he makes it even better. Watch this next slide. And I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep my Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, keep going, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all all and I can read that in Hebrew the word there is all can you imagine if Isaiah would have stopped and said any questions <laughs> uh what about Deuteronomy 23 I know I know but God's nicer than you think foreigner eunuchs I know it says no foreigners no eunuchs but foreigner foreigner eunuchs that want to be a part of what God's up to God's not going to throw them out he's not going to cast them aside this is can you see why a foreigner eunuch is interested in Isaiah He's been outcast his whole life. And he's like, wait a minute, who's this guy talking about? Whoever this guy's talking about, I'm in. And Philip's like, he's actually talking about Jesus. Now, if you're more of a linear learner, I, I did this for you. So if you lost me in the narrative, here, here's the linear. Next slide. So there's two characters. There's an Ethiopian eunuch. He's a God-fearer. But the problem is he would have been disqualified by a rule in Deuteronomy 23. And then you have Philip, one of the original 12 from a devoutly orthodox village called Bethsaida. He would have lived by all 613 fences. And then he met Jesus. And Jesus wasn't somebody he believed in. Jesus was somebody that he's so profoundly connected to that it fundamentally shifted the way he saw his whole world. And that's two different things. And he makes a choice. 
you realize that Philip has a choice here, and so do we in Edithburg. And that choice is, we can be right about singular verses. And you can always do it. There's 613 rules. One of them would disqualify everybody in this room. We could be right about singular verses, or we could do something more profound, and that is fulfill Scripture. How do you fulfill Scripture? You do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And you've done something more profound than be right about one verse. You've fulfilled the whole lot. So Philip has a choice. Can you find any reason, Philip, I can't be baptized? And Philip's like, actually, yes. Deuteronomy 23, no foreigners, no eunuchs. It's in the rules. But because of my profound connection with Christ... I realize that God loves people more than the rules, and he will not cast aside. And he's, it's ironic, he's reminding him of Isaiah, this foreigner eunuch out of all the pieces. of. Imagine if out of all the scrolls in the Bible, he would have got his hands on Deuteronomy 23 that says no foreigners and no eunuchs. He doesn't, though. He gets his hands on Isaiah 56, and he's like, who is this talking about? Because that is compelling. And by the way, there's some massive fruit around this. Philip makes a choice to fulfill scripture instead of being right about one verse. And watch what happens. Next slide. Today, 65% of Ethiopia identifies as Christ followers. Two-thirds. Ethiopian Christians are indigenous. People don't tend to move to Ethiopia. The Ethiopian church today traces their origins back to this one eunuch. In other words, you never know we're being brave enough to fulfill scripture instead of being right about one verse will have a global impact. Literally two-thirds of an entire nation today are Christ followers because Philip chose to fulfill scripture instead of being right about one verse in Deuteronomy 23. And that is worth celebrating. That is worth honoring. It was a movement from a fence-based paradigm to a well-based paradigm. Now, here's the problem with that. That is my best effort at explaining what happened. Now I want to spend the rest of the time talking about what's happening in us right now because of what happened. I know where I am. And I know your leaders. And I know the leaders of this church are already way past this in their head. Like, like yeah, we want to be a well-based place, not a fence. If I was to say, we at, at Light Church in Edithburg, we need to be a well-based place, not a fence-based place. Everybody inside goes, yeah, yeah, amen. The question is, what does that mean? How does, how does that, that we, without language, that's a platitude, and that's not helpful. So I've worked very hard on this. I hope you like it. Here is my language around what it means to be a well-based place instead of a fence-based place. Next slide. Uh, next slide. Jesus doesn't ask, are you worthy? Jesus asks, are you thirsty? And that is two different things. Let's, let's keep our primary image. A fence-based place is obsessed with who is worthy. Have you kept all the rules? Have you done all the right things? Have you fervently served God? Right? It's, 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 wait, wait, that's a worth question. And Jesus doesn't discount the worth questions. He just focuses more on who's thirsty. Do you want it? Do you desire it? Jesus had such a profound faith in God that he knew if people desired it with all their heart that the Holy Spirit can get in the middle of all that and do all the convicting and all the changing in their lives. That it is not our job to be the agent of conviction or change. It is our job to love and welcome and facilitate and celebrate everybody's next response to God. It is God's job to get in the middle of people's lives and do all the convicting and all the changing. And all that requires is thirst, not worth. Let, let's say it this way. A fence-based place obsesses over worth. A well-based place obsesses over thirst. Let's say it this way. A fence-based place obsesses over sinning less. 
Right? We call sin, sin here. We're going to tell you to stop sinning. Okay, I agree with the sentiment that people's lives are better the less they sin. Absolutely. But to fight sin by forbidding sin is like fighting a fire with a spark gun. That doesn't make any sense. A fence-based place obsesses with sinning less. A well-based place obsesses with loving more. And by loving more, you will automatically sin less. Let's say it this way. A fence-based place obsesses over everything has to be fixed. A well-based place obsesses over nothing needs to be hidden. Like, what if we created a shame-free culture where everything was out in the open and we could trust God to do all the convicting and all the changing? That actually all the power of darkness comes from hiding it, right? A fence-based place says, hey, we're the masters of good and evil. Bring us your problem and we'll fix it. A well-based place says, no, we're just going to create a culture where nothing has to be hidden. Everything's brought into the light and we can trust God to do all the convicting and all the changing. Let, let, let's keep our primary imagination here. A fence-based place obsesses with who is worthy. A well-based place obsesses with who is thirsty. A fence-based place obsesses with sinning less. A well-based place obsesses with loving more. A fence-based place obsesses with everything needs to be fixed. A well-based place obsesses with nothing needs to be hidden. It seems to me, if someone was to say, what is the primary enemy of a Christ-centered community, a church? What is the primary enemy of a Christ-centered community? I would say, in Jesus' paradigm, it's a lack of thirst. It's when we quit wanting it. It's when we lose our desire. It's when we lose our passion. So let's put some language around that. If a lack of thirst is the problem, what does that mean? Next slide. So a lack of thirst is a lack of teachability. Actually, the root word for disciple in Greek and Hebrew is student, one who is teachable. In other words, a teachable person is someone who starts with the notion that I haven't touched one one thousandth of one percent of what God is. And so I got an eternity of exploration. A, a non-teachable person says, if I haven't thought of it, it can't be right. I'm going to shut down more conversations instead of open them up. I'll speak for myself, um, but I would rather journey with a few hundred curious teachable people then I would want to pastor a church of 5,000 unteachable Christians. To be in a community of 5,000 unteachable Christians sounds like hell to me. That would be just frankly terrible, right? Let's say it this way. Let's say it in the positive. A thirsty community is a teachable community. It's, it's a group of people who come together and they can't wait to say their next yes and explore the next dimension that God has for them. They can't wait to, to, to learn something else. Let's say it this way. A lack of thirst equals a lack of humility. It... it it, it doesn't understand that our freedom, which is true, that where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. Our freedom, though, is best expressed and experienced when submitted to the higher ethic of love. Because liberty not considering love becomes things that lord over people. That actually considering other people first is a central tenet of a Christ-centered community. Let's say it this way. A lack of thirst is a lack of responsibility. It's even in the Genesis poem... Before sin entered the situation, um, people got their meaning from how well they navigated responsibility for their world, right? And so when, when sin entered the situation, they started blaming. So let's say in the positive, a thirsty community is a teachable community. It's a humble community. It's a responsible community. And I'd say it one last way. A lack of thirst equals ambivalence. It says now that I'm in, how I live doesn't matter. Let's say it this way. A fence-based place is obsessed with conversion like if i could use an orange as an example we we just want you to convert we want you to be an orange we're all oranges you're not an orange would you like to be an orange we have a magic prayer you can say it if you say this magic prayer you can become an orange just like us right and so a fence-based place obsesses with conversion just become an orange a well-based place says 
uh, we'll celebrate the conversion, but we don't want it to stop there. We want to hook the orange to the water source so it could be the best orange it can be. Because what if it's a sour orange or a ripe orange or an orange with a bit of mold on the outside? We want to, we want to facilitate and celebrate everybody's next yes while creating a shame-free culture where God can do what he wants. L let's say it this way. A fence-based place obsesses with who is worthy. A well-based place obsesses with who is thirsty. A fence-based place obsesses on sinning less. A well-based place obsesses on loving more. A fence-based place obsesses on everything has to be fixed. A well-based place obsesses with nothing has to be hidden. A, a, a well-based place is one that's full of thirst. What does that mean? It means we're teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about the infinite possibilities of our world. Can you imagine a place like that? If, if an alien came from outer space, let's, let's say it's a friendly alien, and this alien's trying to work out, what are these humans about? These humans are strange people. And so the alien comes to you and says, excuse me, I'm new to your world, but I hear a word that we don't have on our planet, and that word is church. Never heard of this concept of church before. What is church? Can you imagine our, if our answer was, oh, we're a group of people so profoundly connected by Christ that we are teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about the infinite possibilities to make our world better? You could call that anything, and it's compelling. Now, for us, we'll call it church. It's a good name. But, but you could, any group of people that's teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about the infinite possibilities for our world, that is somewhere worth going to. Let's maybe even put some more language around this. Next slide. So the overuse of fences is not necessary if there's a well-stocked well. There were 613 fences in the Old Testament. Jesus had two fence posts. Love God Treat others as you would want to be treated. By Acts 15, they had dumbed it down to four. Food sacrifice to idols, meat of, strangled, meat of strangled animals, blood and sexual immorality. In 10 years, they went from 613 fences to four. That is one heck of an effort, hey. Like if you think, I wonder what impact Jesus had on the world. Well, let's just start with his immediate world. In 10 years, he moved the entire system from 613 fences to two fence posts and then they dumbed it down to four with the goal of going to two. That is a massive effort. Let, let's say it another way, just to make sure we're getting our point across. Next slide. Are we gravitating to the center regardless of the fencing? Because fences matter less when we're focused on moving towards the center. Let, let, let's, let me see if I can illustrate this. If we are a fence-based thinker, the question is, where is the boundary that doesn't put me out, right? Well-based thinkers don't think like that. Well-based thinkers go, if I'm heading towards the center, it doesn't matter where the fence is because I'm heading towards the center. And that's a more problem. We do realize that if we present Christianity as a bunch of fences, it's pretty boring pretty quick, right? Because there's a more profound way to live. Like, let me give you an example, okay? Because I'm not sure I'm getting this across. All right, so there are some fences that we should keep. Because they're necessary for civilized society, right? Let me give you one. Ready? This is a really good one. Don't kill each other. Really good idea, right? That should be against the law, right? Why? Because societies break down if murder's legal, right? But here's the thing. Here's the problem with that. I bet no one in here killed anybody last week. I'd bet my house on it. I'd also bet that the reason you didn't kill anybody is not because the Bible says... It's because you're not a killer, right? If you still need the Bible to tell you not to kill, I would reckon that you've missed the whole point, right? Here's another good one, ready? 
don't steal from one another. Don't take each other's things. Society breaks down if we start taking from each other and having corruption. That's bad, right? And that's a good thing. It's a good rule, right? But I would also bet that no one in here has stolen anything in the last week. I would also bet that the reason you haven't stolen anything is not because the Bible says. It's because you're not a thief. And if you still need the Bible to tell you not to steal, you might have missed the whole point. Here's another really good one. Ready? This is a really good one. Don't sleep with each other's spouses, right? That's a good plan, right? Seriously, society starts to break down if we wipe, if we wife swapped. That, that the best societies are societies where our life, our wife, and our stuff are protected, right? I would also bet that no one in here is currently sleeping with someone else's spouse, right? I would bet a pretty good amount of money. No one in here is currently sleeping with someone else's spouse. Now, if right now, if your heart's beating real fast and you're thinking, oh, God, don't go prophetic, if that's you, change your life, okay? All right, don't tell us all about it. We don't want to know. Just stop doing it, all right? But, but, but I would also bet that the reason you're not sleeping with someone else's spouse is not because the Bible says. It's because you don't want to bring destruction and despair on people you love, right? If you don't get what I'm saying, here's what I want you to do after this is over. I want you, when you go home, I want you to make your spouse whatever your night drink of choice is. What, whatever it is, right? Everybody's different. So make your night drink of choice. And then I want you to sit across them. I want you to, I want you to hold them by the hand. And I want you to say, listen, I want you to understand. I just, I love you with all my heart. It is impossible for me to love a human being more than you. I cannot possibly love anybody more than I love you. But the only reason I'm not sleeping with everybody else is because, unfortunately, the Bible forbids it. See how that works, right? <laughs> right? See, if, see, see, how, see how you go with th th that kind of thing. We all know that there's a more profound reason to live a certain way, right? It's, it's moving towards the center. Let, let's say it this way. A fence-based place obsesses with distance, a well-based place obsesses with direction. That's two different things. A fence-based place is obsessed with how far are you from the well and how many more fences do you need to jump over to get to the well. A well-based place says, no, 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 we're not concerned with distance. We're concerned with the direction of someone's shoulders and we can facilitate and celebrate everyone's next yes regardless of how small that yes might be. Let, let me see if I illustrate this with a story. It's a true story. It actually happened to me. And I want you to pay very close attention to the story and pay attention to what happens on your insides when I tell the story. Okay? So, I was doing a volunteer's night for a very large church. To be a, it was a Tuesday night meeting. There were 400 people in this meeting. And to be a part of the meeting, you had to be on volunteer team. This is how big that church was. Okay? And my job was to motivate them to keep volunteering. Why? Because if a church loses its volunteers, there's no more church, right? And so, and so part of their volunteers night is they have, a, they have a part of celebration. They call it minute to win it. And essentially what you had to do is you come up and you tell your God story in 60 seconds or less. I was serving on the door and I saw this happen. I was in children's church and this kid accepted Christ. Whatever the case may be, right? And they had a security guard on a stopwatch. And if you went over 60 seconds, they muted you at the back and they took the mic off of you. And that kept people from rambling. It was frankly brilliant, right? And so they're, they're doing all these stories fast. I'm talking rapid fire. Now I'm up after this. I'm next. And so I'm fixing to get up. And there was one more to go. And the guy said, okay, you're the last one. Come, be quick. We're already over time. Quick, come, come. So this guy comes up. This is the last guy. I'm next. And he says this. Hello, everybody. I'm an atheist. Because when you want to kill a party, right? 
And here's what I thought. I thought he had waited till last, and he was going to get up and go, you stupid Christians, you believe in fairy tales, you bunted, right, right? And, and I thought, oh, man, right? And so, but here's the thing, right? He had 60 seconds, and they're going to mute him. I have 40 minutes. 60 seconds, 40 minutes, I'm going to win, right? And I'd already planned what I was going to do, because I thought he was going to humiliate the whole room. I was just going to get up. And I was going to tell him how much we loved him and we honor him and we're so glad that he's here. I was going to buy him a meal. I, I, I just couldn't wait to bless this guy because you don't escalate things like that. You de-escalate it by being a peacemaker, right? But then he changed the whole thing. Here's what he says. Hello, everybody. I'm an atheist. But I'm a lonely atheist. And my friend told me that you're a group of people that don't care whether or not I believe in God for me to be a part of your thing. So I decided to come try it out. And true to his word, you're the nicest group of people I've ever met. None of you care whether I believe in God or not, which I know sounds strange, but you treated me kindly regardless. By the second week, one of you asked me to be a part of the host and hostess team. And I said yes. By week three, I was the door greeter on the front door. My job on Sunday morning is to smile, be friendly, open the door, and show women where the bathroom is. He said, you are a church with an atheist door greeter. And I thought, this is, this is awesome. <laughs> right? And then he said, because of your kindness, my story is this. Tonight, I'm going to step back, and I'm going to reconsider that God might be real. See, listen to that. I've told that story all over Australia. Did you hear that noise? That's what happens everywhere. It's, oh, yes. Oh, well, there's something in our heart that goes, if that happened here, we would, we could, we could, why? Because everything in us wants to be well-based. A well-based place can facilitate and celebrate that guy's next yes because his shoulders are facing to the center. A fence-based place can't. A fence-based place goes, yeah, but has he jumped over this? Does he believe this? Does he, has he ticked off of all of our beliefs? No, 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 no. A well-based place says his shoulders are facing the right direction. And we can facilitate and celebrate that next yes. A fence-based place is obsessed with worth. A well-based place is obsessed with thirst. A fence-based place is obsessed with setting less. A well-based place loving more. A fence-based place is obsessed with everything needs to be fixed. A well-based place is nothing needs to be hidden. A fence-based place is obsessed with distance. A well-based place is obsessed with direction. A well-based place is a, is a people full of thirst. What does that mean? It means we're teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about our world. Let, let's say it this way. Next slide. In old communities, the whole village centered around the well. What if we build wells instead of fences? What if we created cultures of life and provision and prosperity and abundance? Maybe we'll say it this way. Next slide. Jesus was a fence destroyer and a well inviter. Philip ignores all the fences and just keeps talking about the well. In other words, we don't need any fence that doesn't lead to the well. And if any fence makes it more difficult to get to the well, then they miss the point. Fences are not meant to be hurdles that we must jump over to get to the well. Fences are meant to corral us towards the well. Which leads me to Jesus. So, every year, to this day, even now, every year, for seven days, in the fall, Jews everywhere choose to live outside in tents. For seven days. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, this is a caricature and very elemental, but essentially, if you're a Jew... For seven days in September or October, depending on the year, 
you choose to live outside in a tent for seven days, which leads to what question? Why? Here's why. Every year for seven days, they choose to remember that their fathers were homeless refugee slaves in the wilderness. And they make a connection and they make a confession and they say, my father was a wandering Aramean. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 26. In other words, my father was a homeless refugee slave. And here's what they do for seven days. They remind themselves that if God had not interjected himself into their story, they would still be a homeless refugee slave. And here's why. Because if we ever lose sight of where we'd be had God not interjected our story, we'll lose sight of our role in their story. Right? We'll quit facilitating and celebrating their yes as well. Now, if you're close enough to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, you go to Jerusalem to do that. I, I actually have been in Jerusalem when they did this. And the last and greatest day of the feast, they have a closing ceremony. Now, don't think too hard about this. Where would that closing ceremony be in Jerusalem? At the temple. And it's there that I think Jesus said one of the most revolutionary things he ever said. This is in John chapter 7. Watch what he says here. Next slide. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Of this he was speaking of the Spirit. Do you understand how radical that is? In other words, hey, that presence of God that you've been told your whole life is relegated to the inner room of this building behind me and it's only available to the elite and then only once a year. We're changing the rule. It's available to everybody. Now, if I said that, what would be the question? What must we do to get it? And Jesus' answer, want it. Just be thirsty. Can you imagine? I'm going I'm to redo that. Ready? On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up on the temple steps, the most fence-based thing ever created in the history of the world. And here's what he says. If anyone is thirsty, let him come after me and drink. All you got to do is want it, and the full measure of the Spirit of God's going to be given to you. Any questions? Can you imagine that? Um, what if they're eunuchs? Yep, eunuchs are welcome to. Check Isaiah. Actually, if you read the progression of the scripture, Deuteronomy 23 says no eunuchs. Isaiah 56 says eunuchs that want it. Matthew 19, Jesus said some people are born eunuchs because of God. And then Acts 8, there's this foreigner eunuch who wants in. And Philip, this devoutly orthodox man, says, I can see no reason you can't be baptized. This is a beautiful story. Anyone that's thirsty, you can have it all. Any questions? Uh, what if they're eunuchs? Yep. Moabites? Yep, I'm 128th Moabite myself. God accepts Moabites. Uh, what if they have scabs we don't know about? Yeah, I know there's a rule about that too. Dandruff? Yep. Eczema? Yep. What if they have leprosy? Yep, if a leper wants in, we'll, 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 we'll allow them in. Jesus moved the whole thing from are you worthy to are you thirsty? Now, great sermons are not meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. So if your only question is, I love this, I agree with you, okay, but, or if it's, I hate this, I disagree with you, also you've sort of missed the point. Great sermons are meant to be wrestled with. So let's wrestle with some questions. Next slide. When is the last time I saw God do something that made me feel uncomfortable? Like, I didn't think God would do that, but then I saw him do it. One of my best friends is um, a guy named Richard Crisco. Now, if you're over 50, you, you might go, oh, that name rings a bell. Richard, if you're under 50, you're like, who? Was he the guy that sells, like, grease? Right, wait, it's Richard Crisco uh, was the youth pastor for the Brownsville Revival. 
years ago. So if you don't know what the Brownsville Revival was, it was seven years long, every day, 10,000 people a night showing up. They lined up at 6 a.m. for a service that started at 7 p.m. The service would end at 3 a.m. and then people would be in line the next morning at 6 a.m. to do it again. This happened for seven years. And he was the youth pastor for it. And he saw, they obviously saw amazing things. And I said to him one time, I was at dinner with him at a place called Chili's, which was across the street from Outback. And I said to him, tell me a story from Brownsville that surprised you. Like you didn't think God would do that. He said, oh, easy. There's one that sticks out. He said, one night we were praying. It was 2.30 in the morning. The line was still out the door. We had been there since 6 a.m. I was very tired. And I looked up, and in the balcony, there was a group of young adults in their early 20s. And they had come at midnight, because you didn't have to wait in line if you showed up after midnight. They'd come after midnight, and they had come to make fun of us. And they were doing these Saturday Night Live-style skits where they were pretending to pray for one another and they were pretending God touched them and they, they were acting like crazy people and everybody's laughing and clapping and they were up there making fun of us. And he said, I remember I was so tired, I thought, God, send a bear to eat them. <laughs> he said, but the, the next thing I knew, they'd come down to the front and I thought they brought their show down here and I'd had enough. He said, so I eyeballed security, we were gonna throw them out. I just walked over and said, guys, that's enough. Your show's funny, but you gotta go. Right? We're tired. You gotta go. He said, the leader of the group said, please, sir, help us. And he said, what happened to you? He said, well, I don't know if you noticed, but we were up there making fun of you. And Richard Crisco said, I noticed. And he said, well, we were doing these skits. And this is our friend. I can't remember his name. I think it was Pete. He said, this is our friend Pete. Pete was injured in a motorbike accident, and he was he has some paralysis in his legs, enough to where he's, you know, confined to a wheelchair. And uh, our last skit was, I was going to pretend to pray for Pete. And we had strings that we'd attached to his wrist and his elbows and put them on these poles. And what I was going to do is I was going to pretend to pray for him, and then our friends were going to move him around like a puppet. He said it was going to be hilarious. And Crisco said, well, with friends like you, who needs enemies, right? He said, and then what happened? He said, well... When I pretended to pray for him, Pete said that a fire went through him and he was able to move his legs before we got a hold of the strings. And he said, I realized I might be messing with something above my pay grade. Would you please help us? And Richard Crisco said to me, can God use an atheist to pray for another atheist with the intent of making fun of God and show him how much he loves them by healing them all? And I said, I don't know. He said, me neither. He said, but then I saw him do it. He said, I didn't think God could do that. You know that happened in Acts as well? Remember when the Holy Spirit filled the Gentiles? And it surprises everybody. And the religious leader's like, Peter, God doesn't fill Gentiles. And Peter's like, I know, I know. Funny enough, I agree with you. But then I saw him do it. And who am I to argue with God? Let's say it this way. Have I honored right, wrong, in, out, clean, unclean over a hungry, thirsty paradigm? See, I would say if we haven't seen God do something that makes us uncomfortable, well, it's not because God stopped, it's because we stopped paying attention. A am I blaming or am I taking responsibility? Let's say it this way, next slide. Am I a teachable person? Do I start with the understanding that I don't understand and I can't wait to learn the next thing and say my next yes? Am I flexible? Like if God saw fit to fill them with the Holy Spirit, who am I? But the, the main thing I want us to wrestle with is at Light Church in Edithburg, are we going to build deeper wells or higher fences? Are we going to be a fence-based place or a well-based place? 
Are we going to obsess with who is worthy or who is thirsty? We're going to obsess with sinning less, loving more. We're going to obsess with everything needs to be fixed or nothing has to be hidden. Or are we going to obsess with distance or direction? Are we going to be thirsty? Are we going to be teachable, humble, responsible, and passionate about our world? Because if we build a church like that, that's frankly a church worth going to. And that's where it's going. So if you're not already there, and here's the thing. The leaders of the church at the highest levels are already ready to, to make that move. The only thing holding it back are individual people. You can, as a leader of a church, you can only move your organization as fast as your slowest moving part. Don't be the cog in the wheel. All of us need to repent and die to our fence-based thinking and begin to embrace a well-based mentality of thirst instead of work and trust God to do all the convicting and all the changing. I hope Jesus just got bigger for you tonight. May we have the courage to see things different and the irresistible urge to act upon what we see. Thanks for letting me be a part of your night.